Welcome to the Center in the City podcast. I'm your host, Wade Brill, and during this series, I'll be interviewing various thought leaders, wellness experts, and humans on how they practice sustainable self-care and mindfulness. We'll get real and raw, talk about the light and the shadow side of self-care and mindfulness, and how we can actually stay centered amid the chaos and the hustle and bustle of our modern day world. So settle in and get centered. This podcast episode is brought to you by Centered in the City, a virtual on-demand self-care and mindfulness platform with over a hundred different meditations, journaling prompts, nourishing recipes, and Pilates flows, all designed to support you feeling calm, focused, and energized as you live your life in this modern day world. For more information, head on over to centeredinthecity.org and claim your seven-day free trial. Welcome back to the Centered in the City podcast. I'm so excited because today I get to interview Jeremy Hunter, who is a global authority on mindfulness and leadership. He serves as the founding director of the Executive Mind Leadership Institute. He is also a professor at the Peter F. Drucker Graduate School of Management. He also teaches in many other places. I got to see Jeremy in action at the Mindfulness Global Self-Compassion Summit in June, where he led us through a whole day compassion at the workplace workshop. And it was so much fun to hear that this kind of work, the inner work, how we show up as embodied leaders was being emphasized in management school in the work that he does. So I wanted to have him on the podcast to talk about leadership, how leaders get to lead during these really turbulent times. Now, if you don't consider yourself a leader, even though I think everybody is a leader in their own right, I promise you will still get a lot of goodness out of this podcast episode. So let's settle in and let's get centered. Welcome to the Center in the City podcast, Jeremy. Hi, Wade. Thank you for inviting me. I would love to kick off with my famous question of (laughs) sharing with us a time where you weren't centered, whatever centered means to you. So a time where you weren't centered and how you recalibrated, how you gained some sort of centering. Mm. Is it a big moment or is it a small moment? Oh my God, you can, you can go wherever <laughs> go wherever you intuitively feel connected to in this moment. Because I mean, I'm sure we all have many big and small moments that knock us off. Yeah. You know, I think the big moment, one big moment probably happened about 30 years ago when I was 20. And actually a series of moments, but long and the short of it is I found myself being told sitting on a cold hospital bed in in Cleveland, Ohio, and watching the tobacco stained lips of the doctor move and hearing the words come out of his mouth saying that I had uh, uh, an incurable autoimmune disease that was attacking my kidneys and that there was a 90% chance of mortality within five years or so. So that was (laughs) decentering. And you know, because I had never really thought about dying up until that point. And, and what was interesting was it, it, it almost happened right away. It was, I've 
was went to the hospital with my father we were walking out of the hospital and and there was some some part of me that said well 90 percent chance is good news because somebody's got to be in the 10 percent and and i and i had this conviction that i was going to be in the 10 percent and i think how one way i dealt with that was to um, how do i say this resolutely point attention in a positive direction right like like um shift my attention towards what was interesting to me what was life-giving what was engaging what 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 could i use to build a life as opposed to focus on what were all the ways that my life could end or you know what was horrible about what was going on and i i, I did not i was not always but but that basic foundation of directing attention towards what was life-giving and life-creating i think is like one of my fundamental rules e even today you know when we are in this very um you know very uncertain circumstance right about <laughs> just about everything <clears throat> what is life-giving and and i think that is that is a solid platform anybody can stand on and uh, and there and there's always something there will always be something even though that platform might be the size of a postage stamp there's always something so i think one of my rules is you look for what's generative right like look for what's what can you create and when I work with people, even in my own family, I think we kind of, I thank God, married somebody who naturally has this <laughs> predisposition. And my child somehow is naturally oriented around that. And, um, and then I'm, and I'm lagging along. But, um, but I think that's the rule, you know, like, what, so one of the questions I often ask people is like, what are you giving your attention to? And is it really and is it really serving you? Are you using it to build something or are you using it to make yourself a depressed, anxious wreck? And so just a case in point around, around the same kind of story, I had a student whose father had a similar kind of disease and I went to meet the father and we were talking and he was a very shy, introverted man. And, and I said, so what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to take care of yourself. And he got up, walked into a different room, came back and then produced these, the stack of these notebooks. <laughs> and I said, well, what, what are you doing? And he was very diligently, very neatly documenting his lab results, which were slowly declining. And I looked at him and I said, what are you doing with this? Like, what are you hoping to do? Like, like it was a science fair project or something. And I said, how is this helping you? And, and he was kind of, you know, I think he wanted to be like a good student in a way. And I said, you know, maybe what if instead of paying attention to how your body is declining, like what are the things that are actually life-giving for you? And I don't know what happened in that moment, but a light bulb went off. It was like suddenly he woke up from this mission he had given himself. I don't think I've ever told this story in public before, but he kind of woke up from this mission like, yeah, what am I doing? 
right? And he burned the notebooks. And the next time I saw him, um, he had become this amazing watercolor painter. And he sent me this watercolor of this flower that he painted that was so incredibly beautiful. And he ended up living another 10 years after that. Um, and just, I think had just passed away last year, actually. But this, this conversation he and I had probably happened, yeah, at least a decade ago. So, you know, I, I'm going to guess that that probably bought him more time. That, well, congratulations, first of all, on your own health journey. Oh, thank you. And being 100%. <laughs> and I love that question and can deeply resonate with it because I'm not sure if you know, but I'm a cancer survivor. Oh, wow. Mm. And when I was going through what I call my shit storm <laughs> and um, going through chemo and I lost my mom at the same time of going through chemo, mm. I ask myself those same questions. You know, it really is a grounding technique to figure out our priorities and where are we putting our time and attention and how are we living our values? Mm. So it kind of helps cut away the, the fat and the excess noise and shit in our lives to really just focus on what gives us energy, what fuels us, what nourishes us. Can I ask you what age you went through that? Yeah, I was 21. Oh, wow. So about the same time. There's a, it's a strange gift to be given this knowledge at that, that, that period of your age that your life is finite, you know? Mm -hmm. And, it, and as you say, for me, it like took a whole bunch of stuff off the table. Like here is what I'm not going to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I think I, you know, I haven't owned a TV in 30 years or something like that. Um, yeah, there's a whole, whole bunch of stuff I simply do not know about. Yeah. Because I consciously decided not to pay attention to it. Right? Yeah, so I'm curious, yeah. like, how did this health diagnosis or the, even that grounding question, mm. how did that shift your life and support you getting into leadership, the world of leadership and mindfulness? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I lived another 17 years after that diagnosis. So... So I somehow turned five, a five-year diagnosis into 17. And then in 2008, I had a kidney transplant. And the donor was one of my former students. Wow. So, um, and then that was 14, 13, 14 years ago now. So amazing. I think in that 17-year journey, I knew that I was alive because somehow I had learned how to manage my mind, you know, that I, my college professor at the time, one of them who is still alive and who I'm still very close with to this day, uh, gave me a book called uh, The Three Pillars of Zen by Philip Kapila, which was the first book in English to teach Westerners how to do Zen. And if I'm speaking to a Western audience, I like to joke that, you know, in Japan, uh, Zen didn't come from California. Uh, that it was, you know, it was the warrior's religion, right? And, and that I needed to be a warrior, <laughs> basically. And that um, I learned, you know, that was one of the gazillion things I, I probably ended up doing in that, in that journey, in learning how to manage what was going on inside myself. Because I knew that at the end of the day, the only thing I could control, even 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 if a tiny bit was my own mind, which I'm sure 
you know, in your journey, you probably, you know, that was probably lesson number one, like I got to be able to manage my own mind and what I give attention to. And I, and, you know, and as I said, it wasn't perfect. There were times when I was profoundly depressed or profoundly anxious and, and, or even suicidal. And, um, and yet you had to keep going. And so I realized that, man, you know, what we call spiritual, we tend to think of as something as the opposite of practical and something that is far away from daily life. But I think in my experience, I realized that, no, I have a life because I know how to do these things, right? It wasn't some foo-foo sideshow that was an entertainment for me. It was um, part and parcel to how I was going to exist. And one of my colleagues, who is a, just an incredible human being named Jim, Jean Lippmann Blumen, said to me one day, just offhandedly, Jeremy, we teach managers to manage everything but themselves. And it was like this bolt of lightning from the sky that it's like, yeah, right. Everything about an MBA's education is about something outside themselves. And I think it's changing slowly now, but it's still pretty, I, I would quite frankly say rudimentary in terms of what we, the education we give people about what happens inside themselves. But it made me realize that leadership is not about the system you create. It, that's only part of it. The more important part of it is what are the relationships you have with one another if you really wanna be a great leader starting with the relationship you have with yourself. And I think so much of the toxic leadership we see in the world today is a result of people who do not have a relationship with themselves mm -hmm. in, in the fact that they have trauma that is unhealed, that they've been abused and they haven't come to deal with it. And because they haven't deal with it, haven't dealt with it, then all of that gets poured into their organization. And I think that one of the i think one of the truths that i have witnessed over the years is that the leader that the consciousness of the leader informs the experience of the organization and that the healthier that that person is in general the healthier the organization is and that the more dysfunctional that person is the more dysfunctional the organization becomes it's you know it's not a perfect correlation but i would say it's pretty close i love that framing around you know, the consciousness of the leader really impacts mm. what people are feeling and experiencing in the organization, right? That top-down drip and the energetic impact that we all have. And I also even like to say, like, yes, we, we label leaders as, you know, the managers, the CEOs, but, but we all are also all leaders of our own lives and our own work, even if there is a director or a manager that we're connecting to and just how that ripples into even our work. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right? Our relationship with ourselves. And every organization has the person who may not have the formal authority, but they have the de facto authority, right? They're the ones that everybody comes to to talk because they're the person that that people trust, right? Um, so in this so day, yeah. in this day and age, you know, where 
hybrid or companies have gone completely virtual or companies are slowly trying to kind of leave little gumdrops trails back to the office for mm. people to come back to. What do you think are some of the helpful ways that leaders can lead and be more conscious about the their words, the impact that they have on their organization? Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in that question. Well, one is, one is that understanding it's, I think, I, I think that this is probably true, but that most people we would think of as great leaders really understand that what they're doing is building relationships and that they're not managing tasks, they're, they're building relationships and that the tasks that any organization has to do are fulfilled by people that you're in a relationship with. And so tending to the relationship first, I think is understanding that that's what actually matters. Or, or something that matters that's essential is is big and I don't think a lot of there are a lot of people who don't really understand that like they manage tasks but they don't see that the human being is actually the one accomplishing the task so that's one mm -hmm. now that makes it more interesting when we are in this kind of new and novel context of neither being you know totally in person or remote or whatever and and for me that kind of context is super exciting because you can create stuff that we have never thought about before. I do not believe that, you know, being totally remote is uh, an impossible thing. I, I have my own business in Japan and half my team is in Tokyo and I'm, and I'm in Los Angeles and we do just fine, you know, at some level, right? We do just fine. We in fact do better and and I think part of that is because we have a really fantastic set of relationships. We trust each other and care about one another. And then that, that can take you a long way. I think that, you know, thinking about the experience of a client organization I've had the great fortune of working with for a long time is that they came to the realization that, oh, it's really our relationships that are our core asset because sometimes the work we do is kind of boring and so how do we emphasize that? How do you build that? And I think if you put that first and see the world through that lens, you're gonna see a lot more possibilities and potentials that, that come out of that. I love that because that also emphasizes, I think what we as just humans recognize as social creatures, like relationships mm -hmm. are our currency. We're lucky to have one really meaningful relationship at the end of our life and how much right, all that research that's out there that relationships have the biggest impact on our well-being. And a huge piece of relationship building you mentioned was trust. And I'm curious, what are some ways that you feel like people can build maybe not only just trust within each other, but trust within themselves? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And it's a very... It's a very nuanced answer, I would say. So part of the work I do is help people understand their emotional reactivity, right? And, and not necessarily in a therapeutic context, but how does their, how does their un, 
how do, how do the emotional reactions that they have produce results they do not want? Right? That's the framing. And so we might have a conversation about, you know, what's something you've done or said lately that you now kind of regret? And, and if you kind of pull the string long enough, um, you start, you see that it comes back to, oh, I was in a certain state of mind that shut down my options and I did or said something that now in retrospect probably wasn't a good idea. And then you start to see really clearly that like what's going on inside you translates into unwanted results outside you, right? If you're not, if you're not attentive. And so one of the things that I've learned in doing this work in, in working with my students over the years is that that tendency to like do something or say something that they actually don't want that's against their values it produces an unwanted result it creates tension in a relationship it damages their own reputation that that causes a mistrust of self and because i don't know if you know this is the student speaking to me it's like i don't know if i'm going to lose it or not I don't have confidence in myself that I can keep it together in this situation. And that when they start to do this work of like understanding how do these reactions happen inside you and they're able to manage that process better, like, sh you know, shift the uh, direction of the of the of the locomotive or no, no, you don't shift directions of locomotives, <laughs> you know, shift, shift, shift the ship's direction that that creates confidence, right? And that creates a trust in themselves. And then that confidence inside themselves generates a, a more confident relationship with the people they have around them, right? Because those people feel, uh, you know, I don't wanna say safer, but they feel more like this person is reliable. Or they get those results know? that they're looking for. Yeah, and, and you know, at the end of the day, work is about, performance right like it or not and uh and that and that the performance becomes its reward is become you know we be able to pull it off right and and uh or we did a great job you know and that that becomes uh, a really powerful sort of reward i'm sure you've read about it but there are a lot of companies out there in this hybrid world that are trying to track their employees productivity how much is their mouse moving, what's happening with their keyboard. I'm curious your thoughts on how, like, how do you think that builds trust? <laughs> I'm so like, glad you asked this question. question. But no, you know, no, no. like, I'm yeah, curious yeah, your opinion right. about that. This is a fascinating issue. So, okay, let me think about, okay, I'm the, I'm the leadership group of this organization. And, and I was taught in business school, you can't, you can't measure you know what you can't see and so it seems logical that we should measure our happiness or are people actually working you know i saw something in my news feed that xyz company was monitoring its employees and let go of however many people because they realized they all had second jobs or something and um so that at some logical level that makes sense right but if you are in the business of cultivating relationships, that's like dating somebody 
saying, okay, I want you to like share with me your every move, every thought, every typed word. What's that going to do to the relationship? It, to me, it says, I'm not trusted. Yeah. I feel surveillanced. Right? Yeah. Ang and I had I a feel more anxious. Absolutely. Right. And my, I had a student who was living in this world and his car was tracked. His keyboard was, um, his was monitored, you know, his every action, every minute of his day, somebody somewhere knew what he was doing and where he was. And he said, this is a hell, right? This is a living hell. And he doesn't, he doesn't work for that company anymore. So I think that to me, the question is what, you know, are you going to have a trusting adult relationship with the people you've hired to come work in your organization <laughs> or not? And if you're not, then understand there are going to be consequences to that. Like, why would I be excited about having my keyboard monitored? Why am I going to give, go the extra mile? Right for this place, I, I think it's setting up. Um, I think it's setting up a pretty horrible sort of condition. Right? Yeah, there's like a feel like a teenager wanting to escape through the back door of the house or something. Like Absolutely. I'm going to go do more reckless damage than, than I would have <laughs> otherwise. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, again, it's like it's it if you look at it through the lens of a relationship versus the lens of the task, you get a totally different story. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't want to work for a place like that. So yeah, I'm curious, you know, and you beautifully stated how a leader also gets to think about their relationship to themselves. Where do you see for people who are listening, who've never done coaching before, mm. what the value of coaching is from a leadership perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. One is that recognizing I so I, I really have come to understand the value of coaching in a, in a very different way after working now for many years in Japan, where coaching is still fairly young. And so what do you get in a culture that where there isn't coaching? Right? What, what I think you get is a lot of stagnancy. So and what a good coach brings to the table Right. So first of all, you see coaching as a developmental process as opposed to a punishment because you've been bad, right? which I think is one, one way people, I, I think increasingly don't see coaching that way, but I, I think we are far more oriented around coaching. I think, you know, coaching is a great American innovation. And what it, one of the things that it does is that it brings the process of learning back into, it puts it back onto the table, right? Because you may have been out of school for 10, 15, 20 years. And what coaching does is create a window for you to learn and develop and grow. And I think to the extent that American business culture has been successful or in innovating in the last 20 years is, is in large part or in big part due to the fact that we have a lot of places have cultivated a coaching culture, right? And that it makes adult learning possible. And in that process, it opens up possibilities. So, you know, when I work with somebody, you know, uh, it, I kind of frame it in, in a way as like the ultimate luxury, right? Like you are, my job as the coach is to help your growth and development. And 
and it's all about you, right? It's all about you. Like, what do you want to be able to do that you can't do right now? Like, oh, I need to have a difficult conversation with one of my direct reports or, oh, I need to, I need to be able to handle the pressure that I've been given in a way that um, is healthy, right? Because I'm the sole breadwinner of my family, right? There's like two conversations I've had recently. And you help the person develop that skill. And so I think that coaching is of the, you know, we tend to think about innovation as a technological innovation, but coaching is a great social innovation. And it is, I think it's, it's, um, I think everybody should have a coach, you know, because I, I have a coach because <laughs> I, I want to like keep learning. Right? That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause I noticed, you know, I'd say maybe six plus months into the pandemic after the initial sharp kind of fear of like what's happening kind of slowed down. I heard a lot from friends who I never heard being introspective, really slowed down to be like, what do, what are my values? How am I actually spending my time? You know, you and I were gifted this like wake up call when we both got health diagnosis. And for right. people who hadn't had those wake up calls in their life yet, the pandemic kind of offered a little yeah. bit of that. And, and to hear people start to be introspect more, I was like, oh my God, this is so beautiful and amazing to watch and to see these friends that I never yeah. thought would ask these, ask themselves these <laughs> questions, yeah. start to ask themselves was, was so powerful. And I'm curious, I noticed as things kind of go back to quote unquote normal a little bit. And I think as a culture, there's this desire to just get on and over it. And I'm curious how we can practice continuing to stay awake and curious with our lives. I think that's a fantastic question. A lot of the conversations I've had over the last say year and a half have been about what used to do it for me doesn't do it for me anymore. And I don't know what to do. And like, you know, I was so-and-so in January 1st, 2020, and I'm not that so-and-so anymore. And I might feel lost. I might feel, you know, they might, I'm speaking, not me, but, you know, as the kind of hypothetical person I've had a conversation with, the kind of people or kind of conversations I've had over the last year, like they'll say things like, uh, what was important to me before, what is not important to me now, but I'm not sure what is important to me. Or I feel like I'm kind of not myself and I'm not really sure who I am anymore. Um, and I'd rather just kind of ignore this question because it's kind of inconvenient to ask it because I realize probably the answer is asking me to change something. And so this, and I've also witnessed this, this kind of desire to quote unquote, go back to normal um, can only be a temporary move because at some point, the fact that something really profound inside you has changed will demand attention. So then the question becomes walking with this person through what's changed, what's ended for them, what do they need to let go of that's not serving them anymore, and then starting to explore, well, what, what is now important to you? Because you may not know. And, and creating 
a whole kind of structure for them to have that exploration, which as you, as you said, that most people have not had the, the wake up call that forces you to do this consciously, right? But the pandemic was a wake up call and there'll be more wake up calls. I mean, it's just, it's not gonna go back to normal, right? <laughs> it simply isn't as much as we want it to. And so this process of what, what I've really now come to see as a kind of continual evolution. How do you consciously put yourself in a state of continual evolution, of letting go what doesn't work, exploring to see like what does work, and then building a new structure from that. I mean, I think that is the core skill, the core professional skill, I think, from here on out. And, and not just personally, but but uh, professionally as well. Like right now I have a client that's a 150-year-old company. It's an amazing place. They have done amazing things and they know they need to change. Mm. And so like where we're starting is, okay, give me your uh, best and brightest leaders and we have to help them understand how they change right. and how they have already changed in their life to this point so that we can help this place build the capacity to, to do that kind of work. Um, I love I love what you just yeah. shared that I want to emphasize of like things don't have to be going south, don't have to be going um, haywire to think about changing. So it's beautiful that this company that's done really well for 150 years still recognizes that they need to change and that change yeah. doesn't mean bad. Yeah, I think absolutely. Is huge. And while you were talking about this, the shedding, this letting go, what came up for me was this natural human cycle that we have. Skin sheds, our cells change. Natural that there's this constant evolution happening inside of us. And if our brain could just you know, jump on this train of things take cycles and seasons. And that's the natural flow of life versus our brain wants to cling to what we know and it wants to hold on to the moment and it wants to keep things really safe and comfortable. So I love that analogy. One question I want to make sure we ask as we're kind of entering into as you mentioned, another round of uncertainty with the stock market. A lot of companies are letting people go. Like what are one or two pieces of advice you have for leaders of how to lead during this new uncertain time? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think one is, I was just talking to somebody yesterday or or last week of, you have to create a support system for yourself. Every sustainably successful leader I know, like somebody who's got a life you admire both publicly and privately, they have created a support system for themselves, right? They know they can't do it alone. And that the job of the leader oftentimes is to pour out energy, right? And because they've got a, because they've got so many responsibilities and they need a counterbalancing structure that pours energy into them. And that that structure is is usually not your spouse because your spouse has their own stuff, right? So you got to create something that's outside of that primary relationship. <laughs> that does not mean get a lover, <laughs> just uh, clear. But um, you know, how do you create a Sage support system? Yes. <laughs> just just in case anybody went there, right? Um, you know, how do you create a? And it may be a team of people. You know, I I know. I know leaders who have a team of people that take care of that person, you know, and uh, whether it's a coach, it's a trainer, it's a massage therapist, it's, it's a whole suite of things 
And that's got to be, I think, job number one. And then that creates the margin in that person's you know, life to be able to take on these sustained challenges, right? Uh, you know, resilience to me is not psychological. Resilience is physiological. And, and it starts with the energy you have in your body and you can't be an effective leader, you know, as you well know, if your body's totally exhausted. So, so I think that's job number one. And, and the other, the other thing is have somebody you can talk to that, that has your best interest in heart and that can keep all your secrets. So that's one. I think two is I, I am not a fan of seeing human beings as assets. <laughs> um, human beings are human beings. And I, you know, I heard a story of some company that let go of significant part of its workforce from a zoom call from which there was no video feed, right? And it was just a voice that said, you all are being, I mean, that's to me, wow. um, abusive, right? Wow. Understand that as a leader, you are in the business of relationships. And, and if you can, if you can operate from that point of view of taking care of your relationships, then, then you're going to be a light year ahead of most people. I'm, you know, working with somebody right now where the person it's dawning on the person that, oh, my boss simply sees me as an instrument to his own goals. And you want to live like that? <laughs> you want to live like that? You, you know, you're just an instrument to his portfolio, um, that's kind of sad to me, you know, because, because there's so much talent and uh, that this person has that I, I want them to find a different place to be, honestly. Right, you know? because we sadly can't change other people, even though we really wish we could. We can obviously show up differently and hope that influences them, but... yeah. Yeah, there's that point of coming to terms with like, what's the environment that you're in? Well, Jeremy, I could keep talking to you about <laughs> all these different facets and we'll just have to have you back on the podcast. Where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Uh, I, ha I also have a podcast called Untaught Essentials. Uh, my son says it's very boring. He's seven. Uh, <laughs> so Untaught Essentials. Is I disagree. I think it's a great podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, and then my own personal, very aging uh, website is jeremyhunter.net. You can also uh, link in with me. Um, I think it's Jeremy Hunter. Join us at the Drucker School. We are about to launch in November. We'll start taking applications for the SOAR program, which I, S-O-A-R, uh, which I affectionately called our midlife crisis program, which helps people you know, make a life transition that they want to, that they want to shift. I also teach at uh, the Weatherhead School of Management in the, in the exec ed program for the Mindfulness and Effective Leadership Certificate. I teach at uh, the Darden School of Management, uh, Darden School of Business with Lily Powell on our Leading Mindfully program. And the Inner MBA program, which is a nine month exploration of all of this stuff we've been talking about. Um, that's global and and really fasc fascinating. So I think that's everything. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Uh... 
Thanks so much for listening to the Centered in the City podcast. You, my listeners, I am beyond grateful for you being here and taking the time to rate and review this podcast. We have a few more episodes left for 2022 for you all. And we're starting to think about next year. Crazy, I know. And as we gear up for next year, I would love to hear what are some of your favorite episodes from the Centered in the City podcast library. What about this podcast do you love the most? And what topics are you most interested in listening to now and kind of curious about in the future? Send us your thoughts at team at centeredinthecity.org. Otherwise, you can reply to a survey in the show notes. Thanks so much for being here. And until next time, stay centered.